So tonight I'd like to speak to you from the theme, Ten Shekels and a Shirt, as we find it here in the 17th and the 18th chapters of Judges. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Let me pause and give you a little background. There is a situation in which the Amorites, one of the neighboring tribes uh, around Israel, refused to allow the tribe of Dan, the people of the tribe of Dan, any access to the tabernacle, which was located in Shiloh. And so the people of uh, the Amorites crowded the tribe of Dan up into, verse 1, the hill country of Ephraim. It's a sad thing when the people of God allow the world to crowd them into an awkward position, but the people of the tribe of Dan and the people of the tribe of Ephraim were unable to get to the tabernacle, unable to get to the house of God, and we find that out of this comes the problem that we are about to see. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver was with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem and Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king of Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. So the sons of Dan sent from their families five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, Go, search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite. And they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? He said to them, Thus and so has Micah done to me and has hired me, and I have become his priest. They said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. The priest said to them, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. 
Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were in it living in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, for there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land. And they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you sit still? Do not delay to go, to enter, to possess the land. When you enter, you will come to a secure people with a spacious land, for God has given it into your hand, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorah and from Eshtael, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. They went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore they called that place Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. They passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Laish said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and a household idols and a graven image and a molten image? Now therefore consider what you should do. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah and asked him of his welfare. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war who were the sons of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there and took the graven image and the ephod and the household idols and the molten image while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molten image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They said to him, Be silent, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? The priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and household idols and the graven image and went among the people. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. When they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. They cried to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you have assembled together? He said, You have taken away my gods which I made and the priests and have gone away. And what do I have besides? So how can you say to me, What is the matter with you? The sons of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us or else fierce men will fall upon you and you will lose your life with the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went on their way and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. Then they took what Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and came to Laish to a people quiet and secure and struck them with the edge of the sword and they burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver them because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone and it was in the valley which is near Beth Rehob and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. They called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan their father who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. This isn't part of the actual history of the judges. This is a gathering together of some accounts that allow us to see the social condition of the day when 
Verse 6, every man did what was right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. So we understand that Micah was unable to get to the house of God, which was in Shiloh, and perhaps for some kind of devout reason, he decided he would build a replica of the tabernacle on his own property in chapter 17, verses 3 through 6. And so he built what he thought would be an appropriate building, and he replicated the instruments of the tabernacle, the ephod, which was a priestly breastplate included among them. And then he also gathered some of the things from the people around him, the household idols, the graven image, and the molten image, which God had forbidden. He built an alternative place of worship, a shrine, verse 5, and he appointed his sons as priests, all of which was contrary to the law of God. But you see, nevertheless, there was a desire in Micah to get along as best as he could. So in verses 4 and 5, Micah took a little bit of the world and a little bit of Israel and that which had been revealed by God, and he sort of mixed them up until he thought he had something that might please the Lord. And then he was... Of course, delighted beyond words when a wandering young preacher came to him from Bethlehem, Judah, in verses 7 and following. This young man apparently was the son of a Levite, his mother being from the tribe of Judah, and God had given permission through Moses that the Levites might marry into other tribes and adjoin themselves to other tribes. So you have a Levite young man born in Bethlehem. Now, this young man had a place. He had a job as a Levite. Their job was to serve in the house of God in Shiloh. But apparently, he didn't like the living, though every Levite was provided for, and he had wanderlust and an itching foot. And he went off to see if he might do better for himself than was being done. And he found his way to the house of Micah. He felt that being a Levite was good, but there should be some opportunities associated with it. And so here he is at the house of Micah, and he's invited in and asked, since he's a Levite after all, to become their priest. Micah made a deal with him. If you will be my priest, verse 10, be my father and priest, then I will give you ten shekels and a shirt. It says a suit of clothes, but you understand that the people of the day wore what we would consider a long night shirt, kind of an outfit. And so Micah gave the Levite, verse 10, a suit of clothes, his food, and ten shekels a year. And this was a pretty good living for him, apparently, so he decided that he would stay there and enter into the mixture of idolatry and so on that was in the house of Micah. But then in chapter 18, spies from the tribe of Dan came along. They were supposed in the book of Joshua to have driven out the Amorites, but the Amorites they felt were too difficult. So they wanted to find someone that was a little easier to get out. And they came in their searching for land to Micah's house in verses 2 through 5. And they found this Levite, a religious figure, and they asked him what he thought about their mission, and he told them to go ahead. So you find in verse 7 that they discovered a people living after the manner of the Sidonians at Laish. A foreign people had moved and settled a little colony near Israel. They were peaceful. No one was there to protect them. And so the Danites figured this would be a very good place to take some land for themselves. And when they came back with the army that was sent to conquer this area, they figured that since they had found the land through the assistance of this Levite, it would be splendid to have his assistance. 
So they came again to the house of Micah in verses 14 and following, and they took all the things that he had made, and it cost a good bit of money because at least this one piece of equipment cost 200 shekels of silver. But they just took it all, and they made it theirs, and they took the Levite as well. Rather hard on Micah, but you'll notice in verses 19 and 20 that this young Levite was able to adjust himself to this. It was amazing how flexible he was and how easily he could accommodate himself to such changes when there was a little bit of rationalization along the way. As soon as he could be convinced, verse 20, that it was far more important for him to serve a whole tribe rather than one man's family and he could minister to so many more, why then he could certainly see the wisdom of this and he could justify it. And with no real strain of conscience, it would appear he could make the adjustment and verse 19, hold his hand over his mouth while they took the furniture out of the little chapel that Micah had built. They stole a fortune from Micah, but verse 20, the priest's heart was glad because he was going, as it were, to a bigger church and to a larger salary. What can we call this and how will it apply to our day and generation? Would I be out of line in order if I were to talk to you for a little while tonight about utilitarian religion an expedient Christianity and a useful God. I'd like to call attention to the fact that the ruling philosophy in our day is pragmatism. You may understand what pragmatism is. Pragmatism means if it works, it must be true. If it succeeds, it must be good. And so in pragmatism, the test of all practices, all principles, all truth so-called is does it work? Does it work? Does it produce results? That is pragmatism. Now, according to pragmatism, we might say that some of the greatest failures of the ages have been some of the men that God has honored most. For instance, whereas Noah was a mighty good shipbuilder, his main occupation wasn't shipbuilding, it was preaching. He was a terrible failure as a preacher. His wife and three children and their wives were all he had. Seven converts in 120 years, you wouldn't call that particularly effective, Most mission boards would have asked the missionaries to come home long before that. Say as a shipbuilder, Moses Noah did quite well, but as a preacher, he was a failure. And you can come down to the years and think of another man by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was mighty well known as a preacher, but he was ineffective as far as results were concerned. If you were to measure on a grading scale the success of Jeremiah, he probably would have received a large red F on his paper. We find out that as he preached and preached and preached, he lost out with the people. He lost out with royalty. Even the ministerial association voted against him and would have nothing to do with him. Everything for Jeremiah failed. The only one he seemed to be able to please was God. And then we come to an even more well-known person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who judging from the standards of pragmatism was a failure. Jesus never succeeded in organizing a church or a denomination. He didn't ever build a school or have a book printed. He didn't start a mission board. He never was able to do any of these things that are so useful to us, these things that are so helpful in the church. But he preached for three years and he healed thousands of people and he fed thousands of people. And when it was all over, there were only 500 to whom he could reveal himself after his resurrection. And on the day that he was taken... One man said to him, if all the others 
forsake you. I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. And he looked at him and said, Peter, you don't know your own heart. You're going to deny me three times before the cock crows this morning. So all men forsook him and fled. And by every standard of our generation, the Lord Jesus Christ would be considered a failure. So then the question comes to this. What is the standard of success? And by what measure are we going to judge our lives and our ministry and our personal success? And the question you need to ask yourself is, is God an end or is he simply a means to an end? You have to decide very early on in your Christian life whether you're going to view God as an end or whether he's simply going to be a means to get what you want. Our generation is prepared to honor with signal honor anyone that's successful, regardless of whether they've answered this question or not. As long as they can get things done or grow a big church or, well, it's working, isn't it? Then our generation is prepared to say they must be doing something right. So we need to ask ourselves tonight, before we leave and continue our pilgrimage and our walk with the Lord, we need to ask ourselves, are we going to be Levites who serve God for ten shekels and a shirt, serve man perhaps in the name of God rather than God? Because though this man was a Levite and he performed religious duties, he was looking, chapter 7, verse 8, for a place. He was looking for a place, a place which would give him recognition, a place which would give him acceptance, a place which would give him security, a place where he could shine in terms of all the values that were important to him. And his whole business was serving in religious activities. He was a Levite, so it had to be a religious job. And therefore, he was very happy when he came along to the house of Micah and found that Micah had an opening. It didn't matter that Micah's opening was contrary to the word of God. It didn't matter that he was serving in a false temple with molten images and graven images. He could use his religious abilities to get something that he wanted. And he decided that he was worth ten shekels and a shirt was prepared to sell himself to anyone that would give him that much. If someone came along like the Danites and offered more, he would sell himself to them. But he put a value on himself, and he figured that his religious activities and his religious service were just a means to an end, namely his own comfort and his own happiness. And by the same token, God was a means to his personal end. God was simply a way to get what he wanted. I'll come back to you in just a little bit if that's all right. Now, in order to understand the implications of that and of Micah and the Levite for the 21st century, let me take us back 150 years or so to a conflict that attacked Christianity just after the great revivals in America, known as the Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s. The Spirit of God was marvelously outpoured. Thousands of people were converted in certain portions of our country. But after that, there came an open attack on our faith in the seminaries, particularly in Europe, under the so-called higher critics. Charles Darwin had postulated his theory of evolution. Certain philosophers had applied his theory to their philosophies, and theologians began applying it to the scriptures. And so in about 1850, you could mark the opening of a frontal assault on the word of God. Satan has always insidiously been attacking it but now in 1850 or so it was open season on the church open season on the book 
and Voltaire, the philosopher, could declare that he would live to see the Bible become a relic and have its place only in museums and that it would be utterly destroyed by the arguments that he was so forcefully making against it. Now, what was the effect on this and how does it work towards our day? Well, because of these new philosophies, the chief philosophy of the day became humanism. Humanism. You can define humanism like this. Humanism is a philosophical statement that declares that the end of all being, the purpose for all of life is the happiness of man. The reason for man's existence is man's happiness. So then, according to humanism, salvation is simply a matter of getting all the happiness you can out of life. And so, if you're influenced by someone like Nietzsche, who was a very popular philosopher decades ago, who said that the only true satisfaction or happiness in life is power, and that power is its own justification, and after all, the world is a jungle then it's therefore up to you simply to get as much power as you can, ascend as high as you can, and step on anybody that you need to in order to make yourself happy. Sounds a lot like what people believe today, but it was Nietzsche's philosophy that would in due course produce Adolf Hitler, who took Nietzsche's works, took his philosophy as his operating guide, and said to his people, we are destined to rule the world. And therefore, any means by which we can achieve this happiness is our salvation. Someone else turns around and says, no, no, the, the end of being is, is happiness. But happiness doesn't come from authority over people. Happiness comes from sensual experience, from feeling good and doing things that, uh, that make my body feel good. And so today in America, we have the cult of entertainment that dominates our country, the consumerism that rules our lives the sex sells culture in which we live. And since man, the idea goes, is essentially a glandular animal and his highest moments of ecstasy come from the exercise of those various glands and uh, things that are happening in our body that make us feel so good, since that's really what we're all about and that's what we're made of, salvation is simply to find the most desirable way to gratify this part of yourself. This is the effect of humanism. Namely, that the end of all being is the happiness of man. It's pervaded every part of our culture. John Dewey, the Dewey Decimal System is what he's known for, but he was much more influential in education in that he was able to persuade educators that there shouldn't be any absolute moral standards, that children shouldn't be brought to any particular moral or educational standards, that the end of education was simply to allow the child to express himself and expand on what he is and find his happiness in being what he wants to be. And the result is that we, like the people in the book of Judges, live in a culture where there is lawlessness a culture where every man can do what is right in his own eyes and there is no God to rule over us. In our culture, the Bible has been discounted and disallowed and supposedly disproved. God has been dethroned. In most people's minds, he doesn't exist, or at least he has no personal relationship with individuals. Jesus Christ is either just a myth or a mere man, so people believe. And with no God left in the minds of the people, the whole reason for human existence has become human happiness as each individual establishes and interprets the standards of his own happiness. 
Now, in a culture like this, religion still continues to exist because so many people, frankly, make their living at it. And they have to find some way to justify their existence. So there are churches everywhere that are doing just that. The Protestant church around 1850, the same time period, split into two groups that remain today. One group was called the liberals, people who accepted the philosophy of humanism and accepted that the Bible probably really wasn't all that accurate. But they tried to find some relevance by saying something like this to their generation. Listen, we don't know that there's a heaven. We don't know that there's a hell. But we do know this. You have to live for 70 years. And we know that there's a great deal of benefit in poetry and in high thoughts and noble aspirations. So it's important for you to come to church so we can read you some poetry, for you to come to church so that we can give you some little adages and axioms and rules to live by. No, we can't say anything about what's going to happen when you die. We'll tell you this. If you'll come along and pray and give and help and stay with us, we'll put springs on your wagon and make your trip more comfortable. So we can't guarantee anything about what's going to happen when you die. We say that if you'll come along with us, we will make you happy while you're alive. And this is the essence of liberalism as we see it all around us in churches. It has simply nothing more to say than to put a little sugar in the bitter coffee of the journey and sweeten it up for a time. That's all that it has to offer. So the philosophy of our atmosphere is humanism. The chief end of being in most people's minds is their own happiness. But as this philosophy increased, another group of people came along and took umbrage with the liberals, namely the fundamentalist, or we would call them conservative Christians. They said in the 1800s, contrary to the liberals, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. We believe in hell. We believe in heaven. We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Men, for the most part, who had met God. But remember, they are living and preaching, and so are we, in an atmosphere of humanism. And humanism says the chief end of being is the happiness of man. And humanism is like a miasma out of a pit. It just goes everywhere. It's like an epidemic. And so it wasn't long living in this kind of environment that having said we believe in these things and this is what establishes us as conservative Christians, the next generation came along and said this is how we become a Christian. Believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Believe in the deity of Christ. Believe in his death, burial, and resurrection and thereby become a conservative Christian. And the fallout is this. We come to our generation in most conservative churches, and the whole plan of salvation is to give intellectual assent to a few statements of doctrine. And a person is considered a Christian as long as he can say, "Uh uh-huh, at four or five places when the pastor asks him to. And if he knows where to say, "Uh uh-huh, someone will pat him on the back, smile broadly, and say, brother, you're saved, simply because he knows the right answers in his head. So it's come to a place where salvation, as it is often presented, is nothing more than mental assent to a religious scheme or formula. And because humanism has penetrated, the end of this salvation is the happiness of man. So that we commonly begin our presentations of the gospel with, if you die today, do you know whether or not you would go to heaven or hell? Do you know whether or not you would go to heaven or hell? So 
if you were to analyze modern conservative Christianity in contrast to liberalism, you might say this. The liberal says that the end of religion is to make man happy while he's alive. And the conservative says the end of religion is to make man happy when he dies. But again, the end of all religion ends up being the happiness of man. And whereas the liberal says by social change and political order we're going to do away with slums, we're going to get rid of alcoholism, we're going to provide health care, we're going to get rid of dope addiction and poverty, and we're going to make heaven on earth, and we're going to make you happy while you're alive. We don't know anything else about what happens after that, but we want you to be happy while you're alive. The conservatives are now tuning in on that same wavelength of humanism so that we find preachers and Christians saying things like this. Accept Jesus so that you can go to heaven. You don't want to go to that nasty, burning, filthy hell when there's a beautiful heaven up there, do you? So come to Jesus so that you can go to heaven. And that appeal can be as much to selfishness as a fellow walking into BP and buying his lottery tickets. I'm doing this for the education system, you know? No. He simply wants to improve his own lot in life. And so many people who call themselves Christians, serve the Lord, chapter 17, verse 13, simply because I know the Lord will prosper me since I have accepted Jesus as my priest. This is humanism. The end of all being is the happiness of man. And humanism is the most deadly and disastrous of all the philosophical stenches to have crept up through the grating over the pit of hell. It's penetrated so much of our religion. And it is in utter and total contrast with Christianity. And unfortunately, it's seldom seen. But here we find Micah, who wants to have his little chapel, and he wants to have a priest, and he wants to have prayer, and he wants to have devotion because, verse 13, I know the Lord will prosper me. And this is selfishness. And this is Sin And the Levite comes along, the religious man comes along and falls right in with it because he wants a place. He wants ten shekels and a shirt and his food. And so in order that he can have what he wants and Micah can have what he wants, they sell out God for ten shekels and a shirt. And this is the betrayal of the ages. It's the betrayal in which we live. All sorts of people using God for what they can get out of him. We should wonder why God doesn't send revival. He may not until we come back to Christianity, which is in direct and total contrast to this selfish humanism. I'm afraid humanism is so subtle that it goes everywhere and is unrecognized. The essence is this again. The end of all being is the happiness of man. But that Philosophy has been covered over with evangelical terms and attached with Bible verses out of context until it seems to most people that God reigns in heaven in order to make me happy. The angels exist in the heavenly places in order to make me happy. Jesus Christ came into the world simply in order to make me happy. Everything is to make me happy. And I submit to you that this is unchristian. This is not the gospel. Now, didn't God intend to make man happy? Yes, but as a byproduct and not a prime product. God intends to make man happy not as our chief end, 
but as a means to the chief end of glorifying him. So then let me ask you, what is the philosophy of a Christian? If it's not humanism, if it's not the end of all being is the happiness of man, what is the philosophy of a Christian? What is the philosophy of our sharing the gospel or going on the mission field to tell people about Jesus if it's not about their happiness first? What is our philosophy? If you asked Paris Reedhead, who originally preached this sermon, why he went as a missionary to the Sudan, he would tell you this, and I quote him extensively. I went primarily to improve on the justice of God. I didn't think it was right for anybody to go to hell without a chance to be saved. So I went to give poor sinners a chance to go to heaven. Now, I hadn't put it in so many words, but if you'll analyze what I'm saying, you know what it is? Humanism. I was simply using the provisions of Jesus Christ as a means to improve upon human conditions of suffering and misery. And when I went to Africa, I discovered that they weren't poor, ignorant little heathen running around in the woods looking for someone to tell them how to go to heaven. They were monsters of iniquity. They were living in utter and total defiance of far more knowledge of God than I ever dreamed they had. They deserved hell because they utterly refused to walk in the light of their conscience and the light of the law written upon their minds and the testimony of nature and the truth they knew. And when I found that out, I assure you that I was so angry with God that on one occasion in prayer I told him it was a mighty little thing he'd done sending me out here to reach these people that were waiting to be told how to go to heaven. And when I got there, I found out they knew about heaven and didn't want to go there and that they loved their sin and wanted to stay in it. I went out there motivated by humanism. I'd seen pictures of lepers. I'd seen pictures of ulcers. I'd seen pictures of native funerals. And I didn't want my fellow human beings to suffer in hell eternally after such a miserable existence on earth. But it was there in Africa that God began to tear through the overlay of this humanism. And it was one day in my bedroom with the door locked that I wrestled with God. For here was I coming to grips with the fact that the people that I thought were ignorant and wanted to know how to go to heaven and were saying, someone come and teach us, actually didn't want to take time to talk with me or anybody else. They had no interest in the Bible and no interest in Christ and they loved their sin and wanted to continue in it. And I was to the place at that time where I felt the whole thing was a sham and a mockery and I'd been sold a bill of goods and I wanted to come home. There alone in my bedroom as I faced God honestly with what my heart felt, it seemed to me I heard him say, Yes, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The heathen are lost and they're going to go to hell, not because they haven't heard the gospel. They're going to go to hell because they are sinners who love their sin and because they deserve hell. But I didn't send you out there for them. I didn't send you out there for their sakes. And I heard as clearly as I've ever heard, though it wasn't with physical voice, but it was the echo of the truth of the ages finding its way into an open heart. I heard God say to my heart that day something like this. I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell, but I love them. And I endured the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. Do I not deserve the reward of my suffering? Don't I deserve those for whom I died? And it reversed it all and changed it all and righted it all. And I wasn't any longer working for Micah and ten shekels and a shirt, but I was serving the living God. I was there not for the sake of the heathen, but for the Savior that endured the agonies of hell for the heathen. 
who didn't deserve it, but he deserved them because he died for them. You see, let me epitomize. Humanism says the end of all being is the happiness of man. Christianity says the end of all being is the glory of God. And one was born in hell, the deification of man, and the other was born in heaven, the glorification of God. One is a Levite serving Micah, is our heart serving God, though we are unworthy, because it is the highest honor in the universe. What about you? Why do you serve God? Is it because you are going to get joy? You will get joy. Because you think you're going to get victory, you will get victory. But if you're only serving the Lord, if you only turn from your sins because of what it will get for you, then you're nothing more than a Levite serving Micah for what you're going to get out of it. Why should you repent? We sung about it. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. Most of us, when we think about ridding ourselves of our sin, want to do it so that we don't have to feel guilty anymore. Or so that we don't have to be in trouble anymore. Or so that we don't have to face the consequences anymore. But the hymn writer got it right. Why should we return from our sin? For thee, for you, Jesus, I resign the follies of sin. Why did you repent? I'd like to see some people repent on biblical terms again. George Whitfield understood these things. He would stand in the 1700s preaching on Boston Common to the 20,000 people who were gathered in the open air, and he would preach to them like this. Listen, sinners, you are monsters, monsters of iniquity. You deserve hell. And the worst of your crimes is that criminals, though you've been, you haven't had the good grace to see it. If you will not weep for your sins, George Whitfield will weep for you. And that man would put his head back and he would sob like a baby. Why? Because they were in danger of hell? No. But because they were monsters of iniquity who didn't even see their sin or care about their crimes. You see the difference? The difference in Whitfield's preaching and what so often is current today is that today people tremble because they're going to be hurt in hell. And they have no sense of the enormity of their crime. They have no sense of the enormity of their guilt. No sense of how much they've insulted their maker. They're only trembling because their skin is going to be singed in hell. They only repent as a form of fire insurance. They're afraid. I submit to you that whereas fear has its good office work in bringing us to Christ, it's no place to stop. And the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. That's the reason why no one can savingly receive Christ without repentance. And no one can repent until they've been convicted. And conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit whereby a sinner sees that he is a criminal before God and that he deserves all of God's wrath. And if God were to send him to the lowest corner of a devil's hell for ten eternities, that he would deserve it all and a hundredfold more. He's convicted because he's seen his crimes. Not because he's been caught Not because he's going to go to hell, but because he's seen his crimes against God. That was the difference in Whitfield's preaching. He wasn't trying to convince good man that he was in trouble with a bad God. He was showing bad man that he deserved the wrath and anger of a good God. And the result was faith that led to repentance and led to life. There's only one reason for a sinner to repent. 
And that's because Jesus Christ deserves the worship and adoration and love and obedience of his heart. I say again that if the only reason that you repented or the only reason that you serve God in whatever ways you do is because of what you're going to get out of it, you're just like the Levite who was serving Micah for ten shekels and a shirt. You're trying to serve God simply because you believe he'll prosper you. But a repentant heart is a heart that's seen something of the enormity of its crime, the crime of playing God and denying the just and righteous God the worship and the obedience that he deserves. Why should a sinner repent? Because Christ deserves the obedience and love that we have refused to give him, not simply so that we'll go to heaven. The only reason we repent is to go to heaven. We're just trying to make a deal or a bargain with God. Using God as a means to our selfish end. I hope you see the difference between a Levite serving for ten shekels in a shirt or a Micah building his little chapel because I know the Lord will prosper me or an American walking an aisle because he thinks that he'll get a ticket to heaven when he does so and someone that repents for the glory of God. Someone that turns to Christ because he is worthy. It's the difference between two totally different religions, Christianity and humanism. So let's be done once for all with humanism, with utilitarian religion that makes God a means to an end instead of the glorious end that he is. Let's resign. Let's tell Micah we're through and we're no longer going to be his Levite serving for ten shekels in a shirt. Let's tell the tribe of Dan that we're through and let's come and cast ourselves at the feet of the nail-pierced Son of God and tell Him that we're going to trust Him and love Him and obey Him and serve Him as long as we live simply because He is worthy. The Moravians were a Czechoslovakian group of outcasts. They'd been kicked out of their country and lived in Germany and Many of them became Christians and became a great missionary sending force in the 1700s. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner held 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. And the owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked and has to stay, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to go. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. 3,000 slaves transported from the jungles of Africa to an island in the Atlantic there to live and die without hearing of Christ. Two young Moravian men heard about it and they sold themselves to the British planter. They used the money they received from their sale to pay their passage out to his island for he wouldn't even transport them. And as the ship left its pier in Hamburg, Germany and was going out in the North Sea carried with the tide, The Moravians had come from their um, home in Hernhut to see these two lads off in their early 20s, never to return again. It wasn't a four-year term. They sold themselves into lifetime slavery simply that they could live as Christians where these others were. Their families were there weeping, but they knew they'd never see them again. They wondered why they would go. They questioned the wisdom of it as the gap widened and the housings had been cast off the boat and were curling up there along the pier. The young boys saw the widening gap and one lad with his arm length 
in the arm of another, raised his hand and shouted the last words that were heard from him. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And that became the motto of Moravian missions. And that is the only reason for being. It's the only reason for believing. It's the only reason for doing this thing called Christianity. Not because the Lord will prosper me, but so that the lamb who was slain may receive the reward of his suffering.